From the studios of Station Nowhere, with no fixed address on the dial, Ghost Box Productions presents the world's wake pre-show, where dying is just the beginning. Once again, let the sirens fade, settle in for curfew, and join me as we explore the great unraveling, our fervent hope that as everything falls apart, the veil will be lifted and truth made plain. I'm your host. I've got the ghost box hot and cycling, wandering the spectral fields and finding voices to bring to you. Last week, you may recall, we received a partial transmission that may have come from the female herself. As you know, we would love nothing more than a one-on-one interview to put the hard questions to her. How many hybrids are there? What are they for? Do they walk amongst us? Since these tantalizing tidbits are the closest we've gotten through the standards to equipment, however, it may be a long time coming, which is why yours truly is pursuing another avenue of access recommended by the agents. I'm not sure the FCC would approve of psychedelic journalism, but the federal agencies have been mighty quiet of late, as you may have noticed. <laughs> we have, however, been having trouble obtaining enough fresh water to brew the ayahuasca. And our friend, Francisco Allende, who has been making his way to us for six months now, was stopped in El Paso and forced south. Padre Allende left us a written note with the Gnostic Parish of Detroit. How the hell he got that far north so quickly? Your guess is as good as mine. Didn't think the new Underground Railroad went down Rio Grande way. But then, the border has been chaos for a while now. I hear there are more pieces of the wall for sale than pieces of the cross in 1237. Anyway, Padre Francisco put his lemon juice thumbprint on the line, which the brothers of the Belle Isle Seminary of the Nag Hammadi Persuasion were good enough to hold to a candle for us to vouchsafe. It is indeed the Padre. Francisco tells us we got to get water for the ayahuasca from the ocean. Take the sip from that ancient scrying pool if, if we really want to meet the female after all we've done, but we can boil the salt out of it for those of you wounded shamans with weak stomachs. Our agents are headed to the sea as we speak. In the meantime, we've been picking up a lot of chatter on the old box the past few days with tales of the Tower Guard. Now, it's no surprise that the Tower Guard is on the mind of the radio dial. There has never been an organization like the Tower Guard, and the very nature of what they're doing is making waves through the whole universal auditorium, if you follow me, past, present, future, living, dead. Everyone wants in on or has something to say about the Tower Guard. What they're doing may be changing the fundamental forces of nature. All I know is they're keeping the ghost box humming. As you know, at present, Certain regiments of the Tower Guard are actively engaging the federal authorities of these confounded states of America since the stunning theft two months ago by an Ohio militia of documents detailing FBI and CIA counterinsurgency plans the Tower Guard has, for the first time, gone on the offensive. I uh, love me as a loser. 
Are you worried that I just might win? You know the way to stop me But you don't have the discipline How many nights I prayed for this To let my work begin First, we take Manhattan Then we take Berlin Since so much is happening with the Tower Guard, I thought, let's help our newer listeners by visiting the audio archive for an early interview with the CEO of a militia company based in Northern Virginia and associated with the TG. We want to get a grip on how they work, what they believe, what they're trying to do. Play the tape. In tonight's interview, we ask, what is the Tower Guard? The tower they surround is a tower caught in the moment of collapse, and therein lies their secret. The tower is built on destruction and deception. It is the tower of ambition built on false premises. In the age of the tower, the lightning strikes, we walk around with our heads blown off. There is no peace to be found, no lighted door, no season of quiet. Clarity comes in a flash of darker dark, as we stare out through the net of Wi-Fi signals into the night. Some hear the call so compellingly. Who guards a catastrophe? We caught up with a company of them in the woods outside of Richmond to find out. Well, how many of there are you now in your company? At the present, we have about 200 of us sheltering in some lodges, old army tents, and a couple of caves. We have plenty of food, Lots of water. More are coming every day. We're caring for some 30 families now. Well, and do you call yourself a militia? We have ranks, discipline, training, a certain amount of skill. But we are not a militia. I don't think so. We are the tower guy. What's the difference? A militia defends something not yet lost. We are agents of the missing, of the lost. We have no ideology. We are not saints. We aren't heroes. Everything will be okay, but we cannot save you. I wish I could. I wish that's what we were about. Part of me does, but it's not. Well, what is it about then? What are you? We spent a long time trying to fight trying to protect. We were mistaken. Now we are just doing what needs to be done. We bring the natural consequences. Well, but don't you have some kind of a strategic goal? Not in the way that you're thinking. The catastrophe of the collapse is a crisis that must happen. Most people are organized to avoid or prevent it. But we are intentionally being part of the catastrophe. So our goal lies downstream of what is already happening, and we are inviting and the turning point toward that inevitable outcome. We know what we have to do. We are more brokenhearted than our adversaries can possibly imagine, but we will bring them with us. We will not forget or abandon them. Well, what do you say to the criticism that you're promoting an epic, anything-goes, destructive riot? No, that's not it at all. There's no way to repay in punishment and suffering 
what's been done. Well, then what does lie downstream beyond collapse, presumably? Who knows? We cannot say what will come to be. That is not the task right now. Our task is to do everything we can do to speed up the cascading downfall of this monstrosity. It is time for a wave of clear-eyed and compassionate action to sweep the ramparts of this sick world. Those who think their tower can weather any storm do not understand this storm. Excuse me, I need it elsewhere. How will you know when you've succeeded? Succeeded? <laughs> You're joking, right? It will not look like success. It won't be salvation. Can you just quickly tell us about some of the actions the Tower Guard is taking to further the collapse? We are disrupting industrial supply lines. We've torn up railroads. We punched holes in three pipelines last month. Some brave municipalities are working with us at, uh, using eminent domain in defiance of state and federal law. We are providing perimeter defense for many sanctuary cities and towns around the country that have adopted the St. Paul Manifesto and are harboring all sorts of refugees from federal and state authorities. The Tower Guard is hacking the financial system to force radical debt forgiveness and currency devaluation. We are assisting in the national defense of native sovereignty where the people are rejecting federal commerce law and impounding corporate equipment and property. I'm being summoned. We've got some new information from our people in Maryland. Goodbye. While we were listening, the ghost box started lighting up with voices. I've kept them waiting. This is your station. Who do we have with us? We all have this trauma. Yes, we do. Indeed, we are here. It's not over until America is? Hmm. If you're out there, we're asking for your help. Help us understand what makes the Tower Guard tick. What is on the mind and in the heart of a soldier in the Guard. Right. Well, while we wait, what do you do when you find yourself fighting across a bridge to safety while the militarized police are shelling you, shooting you, and hosing you down in the sub-freezing air? Back in 2016, before the Tower Guard was the whisper of a secret, some 400 people stood on a deserted highway in the snowy barrens of North Dakota and attempted to confront a police force that had previously pepper sprayed them, shot them with massive, bone-breaking rubber ammunition, electrically shocked them, and turned a blind eye while private security sicked attack dogs on them. The police were also 
on the empty highway, bunkered down behind their military surplus vehicles, while military trained snipers held the surrounding hills, their sights on the 400, their own public. The scene that probably stuck with the thousands who watched the video feed from a swooping drone camera, despite the best efforts of cop snipers to shoot the tiny remote control device down, was this. By the next day, millions had seen native Lakota people and their allies standing defiant in the glare of military spotlights, percussion grenades shattering the frozen air around them, while fire hoses doused them into hypothermic submission. But they did not yield. Roaring prayers and war cries, they held the boundary on police state aggression in a frozen hell where America had been ripped open to the absolute zero of malice. Cause when love is gone, there's always justice. And when justice is gone, there's always force. And how has the state come to hold us as the enemy? For that is what we have become. You don't, you can't shell your people and rupture their eardrums and blind them and subject the shivering and the stranded to the naked hostility of a war zone if you love your people. Our industrially supplied police military state has made a relentless and obsessive study of how to inflict misery. Pain compliance, they call it. But how can we comply with extinction? How can we comply with the loss of living forms visible from space? How can we comply with the poisoning of children and the death of oceans? How long have we been enemies? How long have we been sick with the illusion of separation? Mahatma Gandhi imagined meeting opposition with a steady and dignified 
assertion of the truth. He thought his adversaries would be lifted up with him to the point where enemyhood cannot endure. His recipe sounds too simple. As we know, making an enemy is simple. You only have to think you understand someone too well to stain their existence. You can't unlearn how to control and oppress someone once you know how to hit them where it hurts. The only thing that will stop us at this late stage of our illness is if we share a collective life-changing experience. There is a way to awaken ourselves in that uncanny valley between our familiar selves and the macabre extremes of our creativity and destructive powers. It is something subtle and difficult. If we've learned anything in doing this show and talking with the ghost box, it's that the bridge beyond our separation takes us through strange territory. And it is crossed not just by standing in our Sunday finest, petitioning the government or protesting. Merely putting our bodies in harm's way is not enough to save us from dying side by side as bitter enemies. If Gandhi's science of complete transformation amounts to anything, it has to go somewhere farther than he took it. It has to be more than we remembered it to be. The 400 on the 20th of November did not make it across the bridge, but they did make it across the gulf of old beliefs. You can draw an unbroken chain of developments between that night and the creation of the Tower Guard. I'm George, 80-year-old, third-generation farmer. Don't have the words for it. But I've lost my way. Yeah, I've got my grandpa's land. Still the same land. It ain't worth squat. The town is dead. The land, it's dead. All this green that you see, everywhere. Nope, ain't nothing but dead. We've killed it. Iowa is, because we lost our way. Iowa is a green desert. I live with my family on the southeast side of Chicago. My community is suffering from the impact of toxic piles of petroleum coke, also known as pet coke. This black powder is a byproduct of refining the dirty crude oil from the Canadian tar sands and the Bakken oil from North Dakota. Produced at the Whiting, Indiana refinery, mountains of pet coke in my backyard. 
One day, the wind blew really hard. A black cloud from the KCBX terminals darkened the skies. In my neighborhood, picnics ended with spoiled food. Little League games were canceled. Many people called 911 to report a fire due to the black cloud covering our homes. They didn't know where the fire was, but they knew there must be a fire because everything was black. We were choking on the toxic black cloud. Knowing that fracking is pretty dangerous, I started to really educate myself of the risks involved with natural gas wells and fracking. How could I protect our animals and know that I was not compromising the integrity of our products? For that matter, how could I expect to keep my own family safe? I objected against the well and by now have fought for years against these guys. The more that I learned, the more certain I became that I could no longer raise these amazing animals. I just knew too much about many scary ways the natural gas industry toxifies the environment. I couldn't keep them safe. With tears of horror in my eyes, and after a great deal of desperate procrastinating, I loaded up the trailer and took all my animal babies to the auction house, where they were bought by a nice Amish man in another county. Nowadays, I give everything I have to this fight against an industry that is ruining the future of Pennsylvania future of my grandchildren. I cry every day. I just can't understand how they can do this to us. And I can't understand how the people allow them to. Three million five hundred thousand six hundred twenty-four dollars. Green paint and box six seventy-four. One bid. Chevron USA Good evening, and with all respect to you, council members, I'd like to address the real sovereigns of this nation, the people here in this room, and the First Nations people. These folks here are, are elected to represent you. They are not actually sovereigns. They are your representatives. You people have the power of this nation. I'd like to say that. Um, I'd also like to say that Governor Dalrymple has done what politicians often do and has told us a half-truth because the truth is there is a state of emergency. There is a state of emergency in the world. If we're lucky, and by some miracle of engineering, there are no leaks, and the water stays safe, and that pipeline operates exactly as it is intended to, and delivers a half a million barrels of oil a day to be burned in industry, in fossil fuels, in powering our cars, in burning electricity, et cetera, et cetera. Even if it functions perfectly with no errors and no spills, that pipeline represents a game over, mass extinction event for all life on Earth. As it is currently today, by the year 2048, we will experience climate departure. And what that means is that the average temperatures in 2048 
will be higher than the highest recorded temperatures since they started recording. That is serious. That means for the entire Midwest of this continent, the entire middle part of North America, United States and Canada included, will be worse than the Dust Bowl of 1929. We will be living in refugee camps. Our children and our grandchildren, if we're lucky enough to have any, will be starving, will be dying for water. It is a tragedy that this money is being stolen from the American people, all taxpayers, to defend the interests of the corporations who are building a project that means death for every single person in this room and the children and grandchildren of every single person in this room, this state, this country, this world. I am embarrassed for the law enforcement officers that I meet on the road blocking people from seeing this protest. It is shame upon us that we are not putting every cent we have to stop this pipeline. This project cannot happen. If this project happens, it's game over. That's it. We have to stop it. This money must be diverted, not from stopping the protests, but from stopping this pipeline. And every single person in this room, you are the ones who are powerful to stop this. We need to stop begging our so-called leaders to do something. We need to do something. If they will not represent our will, we need to find people who will, elect them into office. If the government does not do what we ask it to, we have the right to alter it. It is in our state constitutions. It is our responsibility, our responsibility. Let's stop begging. Let's start acting. This cannot happen. There is a true state of emergency. Hold on, dear friends. We'll be right back as soon as our affiliates recapture their encrypted signal. distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. If it be your will that I speak no more, and my voice be still as it was before, I will speak no more. 
suffering. Thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines. Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on the mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. If in be your will that there is a voice From the broken hill Now we'll sing to you From this broken hill Know your praises They shall ring And if it be your will To let me sing is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another. How fervent their hatreds. If it be your will If there is a choice Let the rivers fill let the hills rejoice Let your mercy spill On all these burning hearts in hell If it be your will To make us well Our posturings our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves and draws near and bind us tired all your children here in their rags of 
therefore is our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Safely from our new location, welcome back to the world's Wake pre-show. The ghost box is acting up again. Are you with us? Who's with us? We were so young. Our clothes drifted away so that the sky was scattered once more with the incredible lamps of stars. Wait, wait, who is this? Now the sea touched the first stains that seeped from my broken body. The great wave of the tide moved farther along and the water lifted softly. Surrounded by a fringe of bright creatures, my dead body floated out toward the open sea. We hear you. No, you don't. Sacrifices must be made. The true bond of all things takes you beyond separation anxiety. It does not stop there. Listen. We were in tiny kayaks, a human barricade to protect three reef heads next to where the Australian government wanted to dredge another shipping lane for coal export. They had these massive dredging ships weighing 50,000 tons. Imagine how vulnerable we felt sitting at the water line next to those towering machines ripping the gut of the reef. Ah, the last stand for the reefs, year 2022. You know, they, they were dredging broken coral, bleached to death. If they were patient, the poison sea would do the work for them. It's now much more acidic than your blood. The ocean is dissolving everything with a shell. You know, we've lost 98% of the reefs, which were home to more than 25% of marine species, and played a key role in nurturing and stabilizing the ocean. Let me tell the story. We're side by side in our little kayaks, way further from shore than we usually go, and we're clinging for life in the strong currents and waves amongst the giant ships. There are other small yachts nearby watching us, some supporting us, others just watching, but one boat, a little fishing trawler, comes closer. These boats flank our, our line of kayaks, ordering us out of the path of the dredgers. They're aiming pepper spray canisters at us. The dredgers have a water cannon on board and are aiming it at us, preparing to drown us in our kayaks, and they have snipers on board, police snipers with long ammunition. The little fishing boat comes near our line. There's an old man who's standing on the deck, and he pulls out a violin and takes it to his shoulder. The snipers take aim. They think he's raising a weapon. They're about to take him out. An expression like infinite sadness on his face. He, he brings his, his bow to the strings to play an elegy.
shiver passes through all of us. We all feel it. Something has changed. We stop shouting. Someone knows the song by the fourth time around all of us are singing. This was not planned. And then the dredges stop. They, they cut their engines. The, the police, they stop their loudspeaker. They come over to the railing and stand. He finishes playing. For one moment, everything hangs still. Just the sound of waves slapping the hulls of our kayaks and the hulls of the ships. The police turn on their loudspeaker again, about to tell us to disperse when this happens. The old man crumples to the deck of his boat. We, we can't see him anymore. In the following silence, we're all bound together by a yoke. It's, it's the opposite of stage fright. Black holes open up inside each one of us. The next moment, everyone's shouting, crying, howling. ships floating dead in the water. Some of the kayakers sprint forward, try to lash themselves to the hulls of the dredgers. The water cannon came to life, blasting at the kayaks without pause. My friends are thrashing in their kayaks, unable to breathe, unable to get away from the dredgers. Two of them roll over. The woman in one swam out. Narrow, they're, they're swimming hard against a current, carrying them out to sea. We're, we're stunned to see the water cannon continue to be trained on them. The rest of our line starts shouting, murder, murder, and three men make a break for the old man's boat. Others of us paddle to the woman in the water. Three men climb up the swim ladder into the old man's trawler. One of them seizes his violin and holds it up. His face looks like the fury of God, beyond all human comfort and knowing. He takes the blood-spattered violin to his chin and takes up the bow. He begins to play that song, Nearer My God to Thee. The other two men pull the throttle forward and the, the boat slowly moves in a collision course with the bow of the dredger. The police shout at them to turn away, but they don't. The whole line of kayaks now rush in, like we're going to board the ships. The operators of the water cannon, they go crazy. They, they turn up the power of the jet. Police lob a concussion grenade into the pile of kayaks. Everyone senses that this is it. The last torture, the berserk departure from all decency and mercy before some irreversible transformation. The fellow at the wheel of the old man's fishing boat picks up the black walkie-talkie radio. Those near him say he gave a mayday call into the handset. The police claim 
They thought he was raising the old man's gun. They lit him up. I think it was at that moment we all knew we were committed to share his fate. This may surprise you, but I don't know exactly how I died. How could a small flotilla of kayakers provoke a ballistic retaliation? What did we do to make this happen? I don't remember clearly. Did we climb into the fishing boat one by one and try to smash it against the dredger? Did we board the dredger? Did the policemen lose their minds by the, agency of the music? The, the government claimed that a, a lot of you drowned in the surf on the reef while resisting arrest. I'm glad they did not claim responsibility. They were not in control. Something else took possession of the moment and it has not let go its grip. I, I thank you for your story. I'm gonna power down the ghost box for a moment. I wanna return to this notion of separation anxiety. It must be very crucial to overcome it. Mahatma Gandhi lived by the Bhagavad Gita, which tells how a dismayed man overcome with ruin comes to see his entire self and face the wisdom of no escape. But how does separation anxiety begin? Let's talk turkey with philosopher Alistair McKay on the telephone lifeline. Hello, uh, do you hear me? I do. Separation anxiety, how does it begin? None of us remember it in ourselves. It is the dancing partner of object permanence. Do you remember that one? You're talking uh, about babies remembering things? Infants begin their lives without fear and without objective memory. Out of sight, out of mind. Playing peekaboo with an infant is very different than playing peekaboo with a toddler. At some moment in the development of every person, a magical transition occurs, and you know, whereas before, the child treats every time you produce yourself from hiding as a new instance of your existence. Now the child peers round to find where you have disappeared to. Think of the profound implications of this. Think of everything you can now imagine and remember in its absence. You are the faces of your first love, the people everywhere you're not, the collected existence of all the fish swimming in the ocean at the same time the sun on the other side of the world in the night, the galaxies stretching beyond the naked eye to the limits of the observable universe, and back to the very first instant of time. Indeed, the vast reality that exists beyond the reach of measurement. Ah, yes, I see that, but connect it for me to separation anxiety. We used to imagine this object permanence developing to be a sign that a person is growing in relationship with their world. You know, now they remember things. Now things have external reality for them. They're taking the first steps in developing a theory of the world. What we're now realizing is that object permanence marks a moment of degradation. It is a moment of enforced and enduring localization imposed upon our consciousness. It is like we are born with other senses that then become inaccessible. There is that classic rule, phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny. We had tails in utero, we had fur, we were a tiny animal adrift in a world encircling sea. 
Not just the whales call to each other across the basins of the oceans. Imagine a sixth sense, if you will, a direct measurement of the truth that you cannot shift one grain of sand in this kaleidoscope of a universe without every pattern changing consequently. Imagine the utter intimacy of such a sixth sense. Perhaps it is even terrifying to know, in the deepest sense of gnosis, the total relationship of everything to everything, the significance of it all. Could we take one step as actionable adults with such a vestigial awareness? But now, imagine losing it. That's separation anxiety. The terrible simplicity of discrete objects. Can you imagine? Suddenly, everything has its own private, irretrievable existence. Hmm. It sounds like you're talking about remembering being God. Let's bring our kayaker back in and see what she has to say. We're losing her. Uh, hey, 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 Tech, can we find her again? Maybe, but it's never the same. So many questions. Clearly, the sixth sense, as you call it, uh, Dr. McKay, is at the heart of the work of the Tower Guard. But more than that, it is a natural reflex of life in response to the great extinction. Uh, a sleeping wisdom prodded awake. Oh. oh, hold the line, McKay. The ghosts have something to say about this. Are we hearing from the Tower Guard again? Don't remember. I think you are. Know how they started? You, you have a creation story about the Tower Guard? Very early. Won't make sense. Oh, good. I, I like those kind. Try us. Please. Okay. There, there was, was a man. He was good with his hands. He worked fixing small machines, sewing machines, vacuums, typewriters, bicycles and such. He had a daughter. She was five years old. The man was past the age of handsome and growing old fast. But he, but he thought, thought his girl, girl was so beautiful. beautiful. She, she delighted him in the eternal heart with her smiles, her keen and following eye, the way she climbed a tree, the way she was learning to read. The man was usually busy in his garage with his repairs, and his daughter spent hours flitting around. On this particular day, the man finished salvaging a small girl's bike with 14-inch wheels, and he presented it to his daughter, who chirped with joy. Seizing the bicycle by its saddle and its steer horns, as she called them, she bumped the thing out of the garage and onto the smooth dirt track that ran behind the building. When, when she, she focused, focused on, on her pedaling, she, she couldn't steer. steer. If he if held he her seat and jogged with her while she placed her feet securely and then looked up and began to steer, he could release her and she pedaled furiously. So, so the, girl the girl discovered, discovered the, the breathtaking joy of stability. Trundling down the lane for a hundred and fifty yards until she lost momentum. Or maybe she felt it was time to stop testing her freedom at the edge of her father, the limit of his middle-aged jogging speed. 
To be at the edge of the solar system is too close to oblivion and empty space. Then, the girl would wobble and falter, jutting out an awkward foot and tumbling off her bicycle at every stop. And her dad would cheer and express his glad astonishment. How could she be riding so well already after having only started on two wheels this morning? Did she realize she nearly had the whole process mastered? She was a bona fide bike rider now, and oh, the adventures they would have together. He was so proud of her. A handful of times she managed to start herself, and then her joy, her radiant confidence was extra sweet. Her failures were accumulating faster than her successes, and she grew impatient and despairing. The man's tone verged subtly from encouraging to menacing, demanding, exhorting her to call on reserves of poise and daring that were not available to her. She began to cry. Then the girl's mother came to collect her. She lived across town with her new love. A few words of greeting, a perfunctory demonstration of the new skill, and they were gone. The man returned to his garage set to work, rewinding an old alternator, and wondered if he had ever so keenly missed his daughter. What, what had happened? happened? They, they used, used to be only, only but a room, room apart, apart, and now she, and was, now a she was a life away. away. When he finished his last job, and turned off the ceiling fan and the naked bulb light, he stepped out into the full dusk, pulling the door behind him and felt a great, shoreless sea of emptiness before him. His daughter's bicycle leaned against this building, half lost in shadow. The night creaked with the last throng of summer insects, stationed like hidden Buddhas in their higher realms, sawing out strains of comfort for a different type of heart than his. He felt utterly alone. The girl, girl who had filled his day with sound, sound and life, life was, gone. was gone. The man sat down on an upturned bucket next to his garage door, its white expanse and black windows like a skull. He lowered his face to his hands and cried. Something about the insistent, the insistent tugging, of, tugging the of the wind made him look up. Some time had passed. The twilight moon was glimmering, and mist was slinking up from the river through the streets and alleys of the town. The mist knitted together every derelict part of every sad human endeavor, the forlorn contours of a vast routine of abandonment settling on the ransacked mausoleum of the world. In the far distance of the lane, spectral in the moonlight, he, he saw, saw his little, little girl. girl riding her bike. Without a sound or the slightest turn of her head in acknowledgement, she started herself and, and pedaled, pedaled stately and ghostly, and ghostly into, the, into night. the night. As soon as she disappeared from view, into the shadows, there, there she was, was again. again, lifting her bicycle from the dirt track, positioning herself, and coasting forward with more ease and surety than before. 
over and over, the man watched apparitions of his daughter perform this new feat, and he was too astonished to cry out. The vision had a strangely automatic quality, bleached of warmth and familiarity. Beyond reach of failure or dignities or time, the girl, the girl never, never tired, tired, never called never for, help, for help, never looked to him, never, looked to never him, stopped, never stopped. The man wept to see her features in the moonlight, a breeze lifting strands of her hair. He watched her ride over small obstacles that yielded to the infinite regression of her replica. She had sailed beyond the rim of his concern and his love. A universal process set in motion. And he knew and he she knew would go she on would go forever, on. haunting the time his girl had learned to ride her two-wheeler. He wondered if every moment is like this, kaleidoscopic and multiplying and ethereal, and, and if, if he, he had just, just not been direct enough to see it. To see it. Somewhere, Somewhere overhead, the, the ghostly and larger galaxy Andromeda cartwheels endlessly toward our own. What is the collision of two things that have no center? The man gathered in his arms the small bicycle leaning against a tree, and turning away, away from, from his, his daughter, daughter, carried it into his garage. Are you still with us? Is anybody there? They're gone. We lost them. Okay, um, would anyone like to say anything else? Okay, then, uh, we will say goodnight and power down the ghost box. What a session. My hairs are standing up. I'm your host. Join us next time when the Ghost Box tunes in to other voices beyond the divide of self and other, and we continue to piece together the story of the revolution. We have Padre Francisco coming up, and an exploration of the spiritual angle on this front line that straddles life and death. Good stuff. Don't miss it. Together, we fall. Together, we rise. Good night. In that episode, Adam Fogelson was the host. Layla Johnson was the correspondent. David Higgins was the major. Tanya Burke was the kayaker. Gavin Pritchard was the philosopher. And Denise Murphy and Gavin Pritchard told the story of the girl on the bicycle. Music was by Dylan Katyeb, Gavin Pritchard, and the Viroqua Singers. Featured songs were First We Take Manhattan by Leonard Cohen and... Oh, Superman by Laurie Anderson. Also featured was the song If It Be Your Will by Leonard Cohen, performed by Anoni and the Johnsons, and the essay Pale Blue Dot, read by its author, Carl Sagan. Sound effects provided by Simon Bessonen, Tilwyn McGuire, and Walter Yilderum. 
Sound design and production was by Gavin U. Pritchard. Written by Gavin U. Pritchard and Layla Johnson. If you'd like to listen to past episodes of The World's Wake pre-show, get behind-the-scenes information on the making of the show, or learn how you can support Ghostbox Productions, you can visit our website at ghostboxproductions.net.